You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 168 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. First, I want to thank Patreon number 10, 11 and 12, Diedrich V, Moksha and Maria C. I really appreciate your support. And those that decide to become patrons can access additional content, deleted material, behind the scenes, as well as listen to these episodes in advance. The more patrons that sign up, the more content I will produce as well. It would be bad form not to, in my opinion. So, again, thanks for supporting the podcast. Now, in this episode, we are going to focus on the geographic origins of the human race. That we all came from Africa is common knowledge, but in the book The Forgotten Exodus, the Into Africa Theory of Human Evolution, author Bruce Fenton argues that within the known fossil record, the current genetic studies and recent paleoclimate models, there is compelling evidence for a superior theory of human origins, representing a paradigm displacement. The into Africa theory does not dispute the evidence placing the earliest hominids in Africa. However, it does not agree with the consensus view that Homo sapiens emerged in Africa first and later migrated to Eurasia. So basically this book, The Forgotten Exodus, tells the story of the into Africa theory of human evolution. Okay, so let's listen to my chat with the author Bruce Fenton. And every time I Skype with someone in Australia or New Zealand, the connection is always so much worse for some reason. I noticed after recording that the sound dropped out a few times. I tried to clean this up as best as I could. Also, the battery to my fire alarm was beeping annoyingly. Something that the microphone picked up, but not something I heard whilst recording. I guess I was too concentrated. Uh, I tried to clean this up as well. Anyhow, what Bruce is saying in this episode is the important bit, and I hope you pay attention. You might learn something. I know I did. So thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, Thank you very much for having me on, Alex. I really appreciate it. So can you talk about who you are and what you do? So for anyone unfamiliar with my work, so my name is Bruce Fenton, and obviously I'm the author of the book, the Forgotten Exodus, the Into Africa Theory of Human Evolution. Uh, I run a couple of websites, ancientnews.net, and also I have my own brucefenton.info blog, which, you know, have articles on that, you know, on the similar themes, you know, archaeology, paleoanthropology, um, some of the ancient mysteries. And my background is yeah, more in the ancient mysteries, but I've sort of moved, yeah, I've kind of moved across a bit into human origins. Uh, as more of a specific sort of line of research at the moment um i've also i've, I've appeared on on tv on the science channel for a, a very strange expedition up into the georgian Caucasus looking for giant bones so some, some people may have seen me on on that as well so fairly eclectic mix but yeah right now it's mostly human origins so what do you think uh, our human origin comes from yeah the, the way i look at this is okay i mean 
humans, I mean, when people hear that word, I suppose the majority of people tend to think of, you know, what we specifically call modern humans, you know, like you and I and everyone alive today, um, which have technically only been around for about 150,000 to 200,000 years. Um, when you when you look at, you know, a human living before that, you would you would notice differences in like the skull structure, the shape. Um, obviously, there'd be differences in the facial structure um they wouldn't look you know so strange that you would think that they were you know non-human but but you'd certainly think you know this is some kind of you know ancestor um but that they would also be included in that definition humans and in fact you know we can apply the word humans to you know ancestors going all the way back to about at the present moment about four million five million years ago so um i think yeah, the first thing is to sort of yeah, just to sort of challenge people's understanding a little bit of, of what the earliest ancestors in the in the line going back, as I say, maybe five million years ago, they would look, you know, very different to to any of us now, um, and yet they are included in that sort of you know the the larger human family, um, and for the moment that tends to, you know, the evidence tends to support uh, an African sort of centric evolution uh with an emergence of the first sort of bipedal hominins as we call it, you know the two-legged hominins um that were largely in sort of east africa well the fossils have largely been found in east africa and south africa um but you know that's kind of what where we start the human story at, at the present moment i mean we can go further back and you can look at um primates of course and primates have moved around from asia to africa um so there's been a lot of coming and going but we start the human story in africa um and then yeah so i've i've covered in my book that period from around about five million years ago looking a little bit at these these early ancestors that are quite unlike us with small brains around about the size of a chimpanzee's brain, uh, something in the sort of 450 cc's kind of um, size. Uh, and of course, yeah, all the way along to us, modern humans. And that's the book really sort of covers that period. But there's been recently some development regarding the, they found a proof of early humans in Morocco or that area somewhere? So, And these do seem to be what we'd call archaic Homo sapiens. Um, so they're, they're not fully modern, but they are, you know, definitely considered within the Homo sapiens, you know, subspecies. Um, so we would still notice they have a slightly elongated skull. They have more pronounced um, brow ridges. They also have some slightly different structure, obviously, to the to the face so we can tell that you know if this person say you know was living today and walked into the room again you would notice that they were not a modern human and there has been some you know, some debate about this because you know in some news stories they refer to this as you know the first modern humans but you'll, you'll find an awful lot of archaeologists and anthropologists are saying well no hang on a minute you know it's a, it's a bit of a stretch to call these modern humans um and even some are debating as to whether we should even call them homo sapiens but i, I think that we can safely say that they appear to be archaic homo sapiens certainly the earliest uh, fossils of that type that's been found anywhere you know on the planet so far and that's changed things because of course previously it was thought that homo sapiens were limited to east africa and there was sort of a was the garden of eden type you know thinking that we emerged as you know as a small group in one area in africa and that, that's obviously changed because of this and there is this theory also that, uh, I don't know who it was, I can't recall, but 
someone in Asia claiming that the Asians were descendants of another origin human. And also when you look at it, I mean, they, the Asian face looks very different from the European. And then also you have the in Australia, the uh, Aboriginal, which also have, a, they look different somehow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is a different. I, I tell you, actually, the funny thing is we have the the most stark difference between two populations found um, between the sub-Saharan Africans and the Australian Aboriginals. Uh, Sub-Saharan Africans, such as the the Khoi and the San, who've been sort of clumped together as the Khoi San, uh, they have a very um, what we'd call a, a youthful looking face. This is there's actually a special term for this, which is neotinous. Basically, you'll find they have a very round head. They have um, the features of a of a young person into adulthood. Um, and then if you compare them with the Aboriginals, who tend to have like a wider nose, um, slightly pronounced brow, um, and a, a kind of more, I guess you sort of more say a more rugged, older looking face comparatively between the two. And that's kind of funny because you know people would think that they respect two. Um, you know, I suppose when you say two well, black for a start populations that would be who are supposed to be both very old, uh, very supposedly very closely connected, that I imagine a lot of people would expect, you know, those early Africans and the black aboriginals to be amongst the most similar populations, you know, to each other. So it's kind of funny that actually the most different because really it, what we have in humans, this is an important fact to deal with is that the the anatomy uh you know the facial structure of of modern humans is the process of neoteny and right neoteny is essentially the retaining of 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 youthful features or you know infant features into a later life and into adulthood Uh, and this has really shaped humans so when you see say the faces of asian people this they're very very flat faced usually particularly in east asia that you'd have a very flat face rounded skull um you know not very pronounced nose uh, no brow ridges you know all of that is is neotenous features and so when you look at say some of the populations in australia you'll see quite different. You'll see that they don't have such neotenous features. And again, they have this more pronounced, you know, brow structure and the flatter nose. And and those are actually, you know, there because of there seems to be less neoteny in the process there. So that's why we have those differences. So it's quite funny that it's not so much that there's something in the genes, you know, that there's specific genes that are that are different as it is the way that you know, expressing those genes and, and that in some populations they're retaining that infant youthful facial structure like throughout life. And that's something most people probably wouldn't know. And it's I don't know if you've ever heard of neoteny, but um, it's had a huge impact on humans. Yeah, I've heard a word. I just uh, didn't think it knew. I don't think I knew what it was. But wh- why, why does it exist? I mean, what's the usually in uh, nature? There's a point to everything. <laughs> so what's the point of that? Yeah, absolutely. And and it really does have a crucial um, function. And, and what it is, is that when we look at some of the, in fact, if, if we could contrast humans with chimpanzees, obviously our, our closest you know, living relatives now with the extinction of the other humans. Um, the, the, if you if you take a young chimpanzee, you know, an infant chimpanzee and look at its facial structure and look at it side on, 
it it very much resembles the human face you know it has it has a the flatter face the round skull uh you know a short jaw um and small nose and the things that we have into adulthood but you know soon after infancy that chimpanzee's face will change considerably the jaw will move outwards um you know see the nose will change the face uh, and the head chain shape and you start to have that classical chimpanzee look so, so what's happened with humans is retain these these aspects but it's not just in terms of this how we look it's also to do with uh, the way the the infant brain functions because when you're obviously when you're very young you have to learn you know there's a lot to learn and you need to learn fast the brain works in a in a way that's more flexible it lays down new pathways easier and faster uh it gives children that ability to kind of flip between many things you know learning language learning you know social interactions le- learning all these important key skills but in most species within a very short time they move out of infancy and they will specialize in something now whatever that you know that is for that that particular animal it will become you know highly specialized in what it will depend on for the rest of its life humans are very different and we've retained this this infant brain structure like you know right through towards adult you know into adulthood uh, and even really into you know for most people into an elderly state and this allows us this incredible flexibility that we can take on you know multiple roles you know we don't all have to be a warrior or we all have to be you know a nurse or something you know we're we're able to flip between multiple purposes in our life we're able to take on new skills we have um, this incredible adaptive behavior that we can move into new environments and adapt to them very easily which doesn't take us millions of years you know it's re-specializing we just think oh i'll learn how to do that and so we learn a new skill uh, and that is highly linked to neoteny um, and the reason why in fact the why the um the head has become more and more rounded if you look at most most mammal species they typically have a rounder skull in infancy than they do in later life uh, and so again this this actually this skull retaining that shape is partly what's allowed us to have this larger brain and to have a particular kind of brain structure so there's all kinds of uh, benefits to having neoteny most species have gone the other way and they've tried to I, i've forgotten the word there is an opposite which is that you know you're basically pulling adult features you know more into infancy so that we have you know if you look at um say animals most animals on the and the, the plains of africa they mature very fast you know they, they can walk they can look after themselves they can run from a predator and they can feed we're one of the few species that have found it beneficial to go the other way and we have this really long childhood you know which is um it seems uh, impractical because of course you know our infants can't defend themselves they can't walk they can't feed themselves and you know we literally have to spend years you know looking after a child and this has actually changed the way humans are as as a collective as well because you know with the the neotenous changes that happened it suddenly meant that you know one adult would have extreme difficulty looking after their child because you know <laughs> what do you do you know got hunting gathering you've got to hold this baby it can't walk you know it's totally dependent on you it's vulnerable so you become vulnerable while you're holding it and you can't collect the food you need so suddenly you need to at least have a partner that is committed to you or a family member that takes on that role or multiple family members and we've become communal beings so I mean Norton is really fundamental to what we are as modern humans not just how we look not just how we think 
but our entire the entire fact we have a social structure you know in a way where we collectively work together to help each other and to allow for all of our children to grow up you know safely and so it's quite it's quite incredible you can see the way that something in you know an evolution has changed us so profoundly that it really gave birth not only to a new adapted you know type of hominin but an entire way of being that we have to have otherwise our children will never survive so it's really profound so it's like uh, in terms of brain power it becomes like exponential growth it's allowed that yes it's allowed us to have really rapid growth which we couldn't have had otherwise um and that you know and that's the reason one of the reasons why when we're born essentially we're born as a fetus right unlike most other animals you know so what's happened is to allow for larger and fast brain growth we've grown this you know almost what should have been the full-sized primate brain whilst we're still a fetus in the womb and then we you know the, the mother gives birth to what is still a fetus but instead of being dependent through the umbilical cord obviously it has this extended period of of needing breast milk but its its brain is still growing at the speed of like a fetus so obviously it couldn't be born at full size because the mother would die in childbirth so we, we have this clever adaption that's allowed us to okay well we'll be able to give you know we'll, we'll, the, the, we'll be born early uh, but we will still be a fetus with this really fast growing brain which allows us to then you know grow it beyond any other primates that have ever existed or any other hominins that have existed because of this adaption you know and it's so the, it's had multiple impacts on us and it's required multiple changes in us you know including that birthing the child you know when it's not fully developed and then having to rear it in a certain way all to allow for this large brain to grow to its full potential yeah so it's it's quite an incredible process and you know how it's all worked because you know you, you can see there that you also need uh, things about motherhood to adapt and evolve you know and and the birth process and you know all these things that have had to align with each other um otherwise you know every baby that had this neotenous process happening would have had too large a head to fit through the birth canal and they would have died and that would be the end of you know the of the modern human you know we would have just so yeah it's quite it's quite fascinating and evolution always happens in small steps but it 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 should mean that at some point in time the first person like that was born at some point yeah and it's again um I would say that well, there's at least two periods where neotenies happen because we can kind of match it up to sudden accelerations in the brain size because, as I say, we, we know that you kind of require brain growth. So we know that around about two million years ago, um, early hominins, basically Homo erectus, suddenly started to go through a period of accelerated brain size. Um, and they have a relatively flat face. They don't have a fully rounded skull. It's still a slightly elongated, but they have a relatively flat face. They And they've retained, you know, again, they've started to retain some of these monotonous features, less hair, uh, which again, obviously less hair is a feature of a, of a, of a young, you know, infant or of a fetus. So there's things that we start to see in Homo erectus, this growth in the brain. We also start to see loss of hair, uh, the requirement of losing heat from the body due to the energy being burned in the brain, and also to do with you know running for prey and allowing, but to do with heat control. But that that again is being linked with the brain as well, which burns a huge amount of our energy. Um, so yeah, there's there seems to be this process underway at two million years ago, which allows Homo erectus to go basically about double its brain size um, up until about. Hmm, between sort of two million and one million years ago, you get this sort of rapid increase of around 450 cc up towards 900 cc's of brain uh, material, and then again we see another 
another jump. In fact, the, the, the fastest and largest ever growth in the human brain occurs from around 800,000 years ago up until 200,000 years ago, which obviously takes us up until the point of what would be these you know, early modern humans, you know, or, or the end of archaic homo sapiens, you know, around that time. Uh, so it's quite funny that, yeah, in fact, yeah, so that's when we see the fastest. And then again, we see increased neoteny happening from around 800,000 years ago. So in this, and, and of course, we really start to see uh, massive changes in the way that we are, I suppose, say socially and culturally, that you know, we start to have the use of fire becoming more prevalent. And uh, it's understood that structures were starting to be used and clothing, uh, well, it, possibly clothing. Um, but certainly, yeah, there's, you know, in, you know, new tool types begin to be used. There's evidence that we start to really move forward towards, you know, a modern human and towards Homo sapiens at this point. So it's sort of from 800,000 years onwards. And again, as I say, yeah, neoteny is, is implicated highly in that process. It looks like that, again, there's been a sudden change in, um, in that, well, yeah, more retention of these you know, of these childlike qualities, again, shifting more and more of the childlike qualities further and further into adulthood to compensate. So, but there's, you know, it's quite a strange thing in a way, because you can see that there's, there are some problems with it. Like, for example, if you do have a sudden acceleration in brain size due to a change in a gene, you know, uh, and it starts expressing itself as, as a larger brain, that unless you get a change in the way the mother's you know, give birth, that you're going to start having a, a huge increase in the number of mothers and children that die off, you know, because they, they're unable to, you know, <laughs> we can't really expect the birth canal to have evolved at exactly the same moment, you know, as the um, as the brain size, because it's, it's I mean, as clever as evolution tends to be, you know, it's not usually coordinated like that, you know, something will change, and then the other will lag behind, and it will adapt to make up for it. Um, but if you have something like sudden increase in the size of an infant's head, it's very difficult to see how evolution easily picks up that slack because you'd imagine that that first generation is unable to pass through the, the small birth canal and that them and the mothers die. So, I mean, it's a kind of anomalous in a way that, you know, this process, um, but, you know, clearly it has worked early, you know, mothers and children did die due to this, you know, increase in brain size. Yeah, because evolution, it must have happened really slow because I was outside the other day uh, having a bar barbecue in the snow and I remember I was thinking, imagine if I lived out here, you know, and I didn't have all this modern equipment, I mean, and uh, my wife would have to give birth here, I mean, we would all be screwed, you know. <laughs> so how did, I mean, it's amazing how they su survived. Uh, of course, I mean, it, supposedly it started in Africa, so they didn't have... It wasn't as cold, but still, I mean, uh, it it the wild back then was not like the wild now, you know. <laughs> that sudden boost in the brain size is one of the one of the sort of a big, I guess, big anomalies or questions in terms of hominin research. How we can have a period where there doesn't seem to be much brain growth, you know, hundred thousand years where not much happened, and before Homo erectus, you know, there was millions of years where our brain really stayed the same size as a chimpanzee's brain you know without it really getting much bigger so it actually seems to happen in these kind of weird you know fits and starts where for, for you, know, you have almost nothing happening in the brain well the structure could be changing but not the size and then suddenly you know we have these um th these points where the brain accelerates in size 
you know, for a while and then it stopped again. And then later on it happens again with this rapid increase. So it's kind of funny because you would think you'd expect it to be just a general curve, you know, from four or five million years ago, curving gradually up to modern humans. But that's not what we see, really. It's more of a sort of punctuated equilibrium type situation with these sudden movements you know in brain size and also sudden changes in in neoteny and and again with tool culture you know there's periods where you know for a million years or something that we don't change the kind of stone tools we're using you know it's just it's like we're, we're just frozen and then and then we start to suddenly you know you see a new technology appears and again people might expect it to be just gradually the stone tools get better you know and it's not really like that that we you know all oh, this stone tool works and we just use it for a million years you know which is you know, it's kind of bizarre when you think about it. When we look now how fast we change things to imagine humans that literally for a million years didn't change the tools they were using, you know. So, there's some, you know, our our species history is peculiar in these ways. But maybe the spike is quite natural in the sense that, I mean, if you look at the phone, I mean, we used the same kind of phone even if we went mobile. But, I mean, when the smartphone came, this the change was quite rapid so even though it happened in a shorter time, I mean, maybe when better comes along, it people just change quickly. Maybe that's those spikes. Well, and also as well, of course, you know, environment. There is some links they've shown that when we're in times of, you know, of um, like I suppose climate shifts, and that in those times we're more likely to to progress. You know, when we look in terms of the past, that you know, it tends. To, there tends to be a bit of correlation between climate shifts and human ingenuity and engineering, you know, that because I guess we get faced with a new problem and it knocks us out of that comfort zone. Uh, and then we're kind of forced to use the brain, you know, to to adapt to a situation. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it does sometimes take some sort of outside little, you know, little tap that knocks us out of our comfort zone as well, which we can understand, you know, because sometimes if you think there's that old saying, if it's not, if it's not broken, why fix it? And so that, you know, if everything's running smoothly, that's that kind of sense of, well, you know, we don't need to do anything different. Um, but then if things suddenly all go to hell, you know, then you, you it's like you adapt or die. So, I mean, yeah, there are these other external forces from, well, not externally, obviously the natural forces that, yeah, that just chop and change around us, which obviously have, you know, have, have affected us. And of course, the movement of hominins, you know, into different regions has been another accelerating factor because of course you know if you stay in one place with a fairly familiar environment and you know the same game to hunt the same berries to eat you're not really under a huge pressure to change without climate shifts you know whereas if if you're a group that moves around is migrating you know and moving through say you know through eurasia you know uh, encountering lots of different environments you'd expect that group to obviously have come up against more problems and had to adapt to those problems i suppose those are probably the two you know biggest drivers to human ingenuity up until modern times where we have you know new drivers like this i guess the the i guess the the want for things as much as the need for things which is where we've differed now by wanting things um whereas i think yeah when we look you know further back it was it wasn't so much that you know i want this it was more i need to think of a way to solve this problem um i suppose that's where we've differed but we still have that that kind of yeah thinking it's just a different driver uh, also one of the things that we have this is going back to neoteny is something about our modern culture 
um, is that we also retain some of the childish aspects, you know, of like little kids, like the fact that we we do things for fun, you know, even as adults, you know, we do things for a laugh or for fun or for entertainment. Those are things that in most species are, are typically for infants, you know, that you'll see in almost any mammal species. There's a lot of play, you know, for the infants, but not a huge amount of play for the adults, you know, and that they don't really do much for just for fun. There's obviously still some social bonding activities and things, but um, we've retained that kind of childlike thinking. So, so it's, in a way, it's not surprising when you look at adults that we're quite concerned with things that are fun and with toys and with entertainment. So our culture is really like childish. And, and it's kind of funny that when you sort of can see that because we think, well, yeah, you know, a lot of what we do is nothing to do with survival or progressing or, you know, like we might spend, some people spend most of their spare time simply watching things happen on TV as entertainment, which has nothing to do with progressing their lives or, you know, or, or making things better for their children or, you know, all these things you think of as natural forces driving us you know we're kind of outside of that some of the time and they're able to just be as though we're just children you know so our, our culture has you know been built around that as well with entertainment and toys and play and so yeah it's just kind of funny that a lot of our inventions now are, are represented by that neotenous factor that you know to entertain childlike adults it fits with my own philosophy that world politics is a bit immature so maybe that's why <laughs> It is, yeah, because we're kind of like, you know, adult children. So we do, we do have, like, we see childish disputes amongst people that we would think would be, you know, the, the supposedly the mature leaders and stuff. And then they will say things that, you know, really childish and have these childish disputes. I mean, obviously, we've seen this a lot in, say, in recent times with, say, the arguments between, um, like, North Korea and the US, you know, where you've got two leaders they're having like a Twitter war where they threaten into like blow each other with nuclear missiles. And like, you know, it's, you're seeing like almost like little kids and that, you know, fighting, you know, in the playground and stuff. Yet there are people in these like really responsible, you know, sort of mature adult positions and stuff. So, I mean, that kind of exemplifies, yeah, the fact that, you know, this, this culture built around like adult kids. And also, you know, that we do have this ability those companies tap into obviously that you know that you know hey if we can find a way of, of of getting to the child in the adult we can get them to want all sorts of stuff and to do all sorts of silly things you know because they can access beyond that part of you that's a mature adult and that inner child part which is fundamental to us you know that's in many ways you know why we have i suppose like the materialist you know culture that we have is kind of that tapping into that that kids get bored easily and they like to have lots of toys you know and that they don't want yesterday's toy they want tomorrow's toy and, and that has retained into our adulthood so that you know that we can be convinced to spend like a lot of our our time doing work to get stuff which is just like toys and things, things we don't need and so so again it's had you know serious implications for the way human society works today you know in what was a process to work very well for a you know for a hunter gatherer like immediate reward society, um, but yet in in our kind of more complex you know um, sedentary um, I suppose more what's the word um, 
well, yeah, basically a culture that's being kind. I'm just thinking the word um, tamed kind of version of humans, you know, rather than the wild, you know, out there uh, where th- this adaptability was used in dealing with the environment and and whatnot. You know, these these fundamental traits have now been sort of turned in and pushed into new avenues that they they didn't really adapt to in evolution. But you know, obviously now that there's people strategizing, how do we tap into these fundamentals of humans and how do we use them to to sell more things or to get people to do things and that's what we are literally kind of seeing in our in our culture so it's kind of funny that yeah that, that i don't know it's difficult obviously some people will be less neotenous and others are maybe will be more rigid and set in their ways and come across as more mature or more you know stubborn and so obviously we do see those people too and in some ways i guess you know sometimes that's a good thing in somebody uh, like in a leader perhaps that they're not quite so likely to chop and change between things um but yeah it's it's, it's a funny one that we can see yeah how this uh, adaptive trait that was really beneficial can be hugely problematic especially for a species that now has you know weapons to like blow each other to bits over like silly arguments and stuff it's, so it's kind of yeah it's, it's a double-edged sword I'm not sure about the time time frame, but did the Pangaea break up and form continents before the humans populated the world, or or did they do that after? Yeah, it did. No, it 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 broken up about over 100 million years ago. So so you've got all the continents have separated. Um, the primates have already moved around the planet um, within well the early about 45 million years ago. You've got Asian. Uh, primates that have mo- moved their way towards Africa due to a climate shift. Um, there was populations of early, like what well, I suppose you could say, late era primates on their way to becoming hominins uh, across like Eurasia and into Africa by about um, 12 million years ago. And some of the some of the important stages in evolution for humans, you know, actually happened in Europe and in Asia. And, you know, this it's just that the first fully sort of bipedal. Um, hominins are recognized as being those in Africa but I mean stages in this story take us back to you know to Europe and to Asia Um, so I mean it goes back a fair way obviously to early primates Um, and obviously you've probably seen in recent months there's been a couple of fossil finds that have questioned um, parts of this story because they found there's footprints down on I think on Crete down in the Mediterranean and there's some what appears to be hominin footprints dating to about uh, from right about five and a half, six million years ago or something. Which you see, and they they seem to be more human like, more modern human like than those in Africa about three or four million years ago. And so there's a question at the moment: was there a, a human ancestor, you know, walking around in southern Europe, you know, around five million years ago? Uh, they also found some teeth in I think in Bulgaria that were about nine million years old, and they thought that this was another sort of early hominin um but you know these, these things are obviously on their own you know, they don't change the story you know because you need a lot more evidence so so right now the case seems to be that yeah you know after these primates have moved around that the the, the first group to make that transition to walking on two feet and you know starting to behave more like an early human you know seem to be those in africa in east, east africa generally um, and then from 5 million to 2 million years ago, the story is largely based in Africa with these, again, with these sort of small brained 
um, you know, two-legged early hominins. They're not not wildly different from a chimpanzee, and other than the fact that they are walking or you know, routine on two legs, whereas chimpanzees obviously uh, swinging through the trees or walking on four legs or two legs. You know that they they can change between quite easily. You know, the ones in Africa seem to have adapted and become two-legged. So that's the main difference. And then at two million years ago is really when we see about two and a half million years ago, we really start to see fossils that begin to resemble what we would accept more as, you know, obviously human, you know, with the larger brain appearing and being taller and more bulky and, you know, and quite unlike chimpanzees. Um, so from then, around about the same time, uh, two million years ago, Homo erectus is also found outside of Africa. And you had this at 1.9 million years ago. They've got fossil finds in Georgia, in the Caucasus, what they call um, the Damanisi uh, Homo erectus. Um, for people might know, you know, Georgia is basically on the, the sort of Europe-Asia borders um, near the Black Sea. Uh, and they found, you know, these a collection of five fossil skulls of Homo erectus there dated to about 1.8 million years ago. So obviously that's really early because the earliest ones in Africa are about 1.9 million, right? And then you've got Homo erectus skulls and stuff that have been found down in, in Indonesia, sort of Southeast Asia, around the same time, around 1.8 million years. So Homo erectus is kind of quite widely distributed from the moment it's found in the fossil record. And this is one of the reasons why the out of Asia theory used to be really prominent because we had, you know, these fossil skulls in um, Java of early Homo erectus and people. So initially, if you go back sort of 50 years ago, so, you know, it was still quite a popular theory that that modern humans had come from Asia because of these, you know, these skulls that were found there. You know, they found other finds in Africa that it switched from an out of Asia to an out of Africa. Um, but there's, again, you know, there's some debate going on now. Although out of Africa or recent out of Africa is the favoured model, there is a multi-regional theory, which is, well, look, you know, if Homo erectus, the ancestor of modern humans, if they're already everywhere by around 1.8 million years ago, why can't they also be evolving towards modern humans everywhere? You know, why can't they have evolved in Georgia and in, in Indonesia and in East Africa? And, and all of those lines of Homo erectus produced Homo sapiens, you know? So this is, this is where that argument comes from and where you hear people saying, well, I think such and such group may be evolved separately you know, from these early ancestors, which is not at first entirely unreasonable, you know, because obviously, you know, they are supposedly that last, you know, direct ancestor. And obviously, if they're all evolving forwards, then, you know, why not in a way? Um, and so there's, there is still some debate going on about that. But what it seems to be is that basically around about 800,000 years ago, like a group of these probably Homo erectus, but of a human group, you know, that's living around that time, it goes under, you know, rapid changes. And from from my understanding, I would say that it's very unlikely that this is happening in multiple places. And the reason for that is because in the modern human population today, you know, if you take any two humans, the difference in our in the DNA, right, is 0.1%. And that's that's really low, especially for species of 7 billion individuals. And that strongly suggests that all of us living today have, have a root in one small population somewhere, rather than having arisen in different, you know, different groups geographically, because we would expect then to see more like variation in the genome because you know obviously if one group has evolved separately in africa another group's evolved separately down in asia and another one up in georgia 
those groups would have had a very long period where they were separate from each other in which they would have developed unique genetic changes right and we really don't see that at all in the genome now and in fact if you look at one like a group of chimpanzees in africa you'll find there's more variation in one geographically isolated small group of chimpanzees than in all seven billion humans right so so that really questions that idea when people say well i think there's been multiple arisings you know of, of modern humans genetics really doesn't support that view and i'd say that you know if anything if people really look at it they'll see that this is one of those unifying understandings um for modern humans is because there's there's this remaining kind of you know debate as you know like oh maybe i don't know maybe you know asians evolve separately or black people evolve separately or white people evolve separately. and there's that kind of underlying thing but that's kind of a misunderstanding because when you look at the genome i, I find that that's an impossible argument to believe because of just of that absolute lack of variation in the genome it makes it very clear that we've arisen like from a very small group of people somewhere you know um and which is makes kind of sense because we're quite an anomalous being and as i said again we've got that, the neoteny and stuff that's kicked in so again you'd have to have uh, these changes like the sudden brain size and the neoteny and stuff like occurring in multiple populations across multiple regions at the same time to produce us to all be basically the same now and that as you know from an evolutionary perspective is really unlikely to have the same sets of changes happening in, in completely isolated populations at the same time. So again, there's a lot of evidence that points to to the the Homo sapiens story being a story of, you know, from one population. That makes it uh, impressive then that the whole world is populated if it was just one family from the beginning. They, had, they would have to go to Australia and Micronesia and Latin America somehow. Yeah, it's incredibly impressive, I think, you know, because when you look at the, you know, obviously there was still Homo erectus around the planet. You know, when when these when these changes begin 800,000 years ago, you know, it's not that the other Homo erectus groups or other kinds of hominins have all just disappeared. You know, they're still out there. And yet somehow, you know, this this new subspecies you know that's emerged from one small group goes on to basically replace all of the human forms on the planet to the point where that you know today obviously well not even just today but tens of thousands of years ago that they were all extinct you know and that we had taken over and it's not just um like modern humans you know that i'd say within 800,000 years ago you have the um, basically the divergence of homo sapiens neanderthals denisovans begins right so these three groups or three subspecies i would call them really rather than three species they are coming out of that same event right and all three of them go on to then produce large complex brains um from the fossil record we know neanderthals weren't quite as neotenous as us and they also weren't quite as adaptive it looks like and they weren't as creative so again there's a link between neoteny we seem to modern humans have greater neoteny than neanderthals but we they still had a large brain a complex brain they emerge from that same event from that 800,000 years ago as the brain accelerates right so you have these three subspecies at least maybe some others that we don't know of uh, that go on to basically populate the planet and to, you know they're the ones who we see the art you know we see their tools and you know the, and the other surviving sort of relic populations the homo erectus and stuff really don't achieve very much i mean we are left with a few signs that they did stuff there's you know a spiral like engraving and a couple of things on a shell down in indonesia uh, and some tentative evidence that maybe they managed to make a raft to move around in indonesia um 
So I'm not saying that they were completely stupid, but you know, obviously they don't do any of the things that these other later species do. And somehow, like Neanderthals, you know, modern human type of Homo sapiens and these Denisovans really spread across most of Eurasia, Australia, Africa, you know, some in towards Africa again, we get Homo hydrogensis, uh, who's an ancestral Neanderthal, uh, makes its way into Africa again. And, you know, so they really take over. Um, and another thing why we know that that these free populations have have come from that same event is because i mean are you familiar with the fusion of chromosome two no no okay because this gets this is a subject pulled up sometimes by um people in i guess you'd call like really in the fringe fringe obviously i'm kind of in the fringe i'm not an academic um but there's you know people say well look you know you see this fusion of chromosome two you know was it aliens was it um what was it you know what what happened basically it's quite strange you suddenly find that instead of having 48 chromosomes like other primates modern humans have 46 chromosomes right um and as far as we understand it you know in the past ancient humans and primates 48 chromosomes until two of them fused together and we can see the which two you know equivalent in chimpanzees you know which are not fused and so there's something happened around the same time as we begin to emerge and this this fusion as i was you know, i've been looking into it a bit and you find the dating of it is very close to the same dating of the divergence of these you know of the, of the neanderthals the denisovans and homo sapiens right so this same event involving this fusion seems to be closely related to the sudden accelerated brain size right so you've got a small population that has this sort of strange you know anomalous event this gene fusion then has rapid brain size change and it gives rise to the, the free most i guess intellectually advanced human species that we know of you know so there's something really fascinating here and this obviously partly explains why we see these small groups somehow take over the planet because they have all experienced you know they've all gone through a, a change which is causing a rapid change in their brain structure which no other hominin group can, can, can no longer compete with them right they, they've suddenly got this adaptive ability you know flexibility of thinking that they can go into pretty much any environment and figure out you know how to adapt to it whereas the homo erectus we imagine would have been very specialized you know it wouldn't have taken much of a change or much of a problem to put them at a disadvantage to humans that were able to change you know and think up new tools and to think of you know hey i'll make a fire here or you know i'll do this or do that you know so i think that we can see that something really amazing you know so beneficial that it, it makes these new subspecies we really see not only the birth of these new species, but the end, you know, the end of days, really, for, for all of the other hominins that were wandering around. Because we know, you know, that within, you know, I guess, you know, we know sort of total specifics, but certainly uh, within the hundreds of thousands of years after, you know, that they are, they're all vanishing, you know, and it leaves only these, you know, these, um, the other groups with the 46 chromosomes. So, so clearly these groups have gained some kind of monumental advantage where they can go from being a small group somewhere to literally populating the world. So it's quite incredible. And it's quite funny also that they traveled such distances and populated the whole world. And then after they did that, they like, no, we just settled down somewhere. <laughs> 
Yeah, they, you know, they really travelled. I mean, we've got. I mean, it seems now, looking at you know, from my research, that Neanderthals had um, a fairly big range. I mean, for a long time, Neanderthals have been thought of as just specifically a European hominin, right? Which is the sort of classic story we all grew up with. But now, when when they looked at the sort of the genes, they found that there was, I would say, a higher genetic turnover of Neanderthals in Central Asia, which means basically it suggests that there was a larger, more diverse population of Neanderthals in Central Asia than in Europe. And that what may well have been happening is that every now and again, groups of these Asian Neanderthals were kind of invading into Europe um, and, and populating Europe and that they weren't really a European hominin. And also with the Denisovans now, they've come to the conclusion that probably there was at least two populations of Denisovans. There was some of, again, in um, probably Central Asia, maybe, you know, into possibly even into East Asia. There's some fossils in China and stuff, which may be Denisovans. Nobody knows for sure because we, you know, because we've only got confirmed a finger bone and a few teeth in a cave in Siberia, right? So, so although we find some skulls that are anomalous, without the DNA, we can't be sure. But it seems that possibly they were there. And we also know that the Aboriginals have got DNA from Denisovans. But but these Denisovans are a different group, right? Um, it shows that they split away from these other, we call, I suppose, Central Asian Denisovans around about 200,000 years earlier before this interbreeding with modern humans. So you've got what they call Southern Denisovans and these kind of Central Asian or Siberian Denisovans. So it looks likely that they had a population stretching throughout you know, from Central Asia down into East Asia and even into Southeast Asia and South Asia, probably, with, with Neanderthals going the other way, you know, having Central Asia towards Europe. Um, and so they were talking about, you know, what became two quite regionally, you know, d- um, diverse populations. And at some points, quite large populations. They know now that Neanderthals at some point were certainly in the hundreds of thousands. And what the problem was in the past, they hadn't really realized, but Neanderthals seem to have tended to stick to small, isolated tribal groups. And um, there'd been this kind of assumption that they were always a small population. But now they think that there was actually a large number, but split into these regional groups. Uh, again, looking at, at the genes and looking at the genome of Neanderthals. Um, that we, so we may have had two, you know, quite large populations of Denisovans and Neanderthals, and then a quite large population of modern humans as well. Now, in my model, I argue that modern humans are split largely... Well, early change from modern humans, Homo sapiens, you know, I guess our direct ancestors um, would have been split between some up in across Eurasia, where the Neanderthals, Denisovans were. There's some evidence of interbreeding, even up to say a bit before 200,000 years ago, between Neanderthals and our ancestors. So we know that there must have been some out in Eurasia. We also know, of course, that they were in Africa. We've got, you know, we've got skull finds going back over 200 and then now 300,000 years ago. Um, but I also argue that they were down in Australasia. Um, and that's a more complex argument. One of the reasons why we don't find good, um, really old fossils in Australasia. If you look at Southeast Asia today and look at Australasia today, there's almost a continent missing in terms of the amount of land that was there before the rising of the of the sea levels, you know, at the end of the last ice age. So we've we've lost like all of the coastal land in those regions. And that, that's a huge problem because, you know, early humans tend to be quite coastal because, you know, you, obviously you've got resources and stuff along the coasts. You know, so if you're if you're a population that moves and into a new environment or, you know, travels, coasts are a good route because, of course, you've got access to to fish and to food, you know, and obviously usually there's more rainfall along coasts and stuff as well from evaporation and rainfall. So that's why even today, you know, as you know, modern human cities usually uh, are much, there's, you know, 
more densely packed along coastlines than they are in the interior of countries, except for where there's massive overpopulation. Um, so, so we still tend towards the coasts. Um, and so, they, of course, in the past, it was much more so because they didn't have, you know, the ability to, to to do some things that we can do with changing the landscapes and stuff. So, I mean, it's, yeah, so really we tend to, you know, look along those coastlines for science. But if you've had a massive sea level increase, you lose those fossils. But what we have found is that there's evidence in the in the genomes, again, of Aboriginals, which which is really sort of telling that there's a, a huge lost chapter of the story. Um one of the things is, I mean, there's direct evidence of, of fire stick farming. Down, right? They found they did two separate studies where they found evidence that people have been slash burning forests, um, you know, which is a huge, basically a human activity. They were finding that there's evidence that that happened. Suddenly, there's um, peaks that match fire stick farming in the in the in the cores of uh, Great Barrier Reef core that were taken, and also sampling near I mean, Lake George. They've also found in the genome of Aboriginals that there's evidence of um, interbreeding with another human group, which has vanished now, but dates to about 120,000 years ago as well, and that they have Denisovan genes. Uh, and also genes from another unknown hominin. So there's some really strange stuff here. And, and when you think about that, that goes totally against the model in which these the ancestors of Aboriginals supposedly came here about 50,000 years ago. Now, now it's pushed back a bit, 60,000, but these other elements really don't fit with that. They fit with a population having been here much longer. So I think that we're looking at a population that was spread right across between Africa, across you know Europe, Asia, and Australasia at one point. And that point would have been about 200,000 years ago, um, sort of onwards. And then there's a, a massive event at 74,000 years ago, which is the, well, there's a dip in the climate, right? So you've got cooling happening, but you also then have the Lake Toba supervolcano goes off. And this largely impacts the Northern Hemisphere. You have this enormous cloud of gas and dust and, you know, goes up into the atmosphere, heads to the northwest from, from Indonesia and then up into the northern hemisphere. And this circles the planet, causing, you know, accelerated cooling. And like, if you keep in mind, we're already in a cooling phase at the time. And obviously this is in the Ice Age, right? So you've suddenly you've got, you know, a secondary, you know, impact on the cooling, which then accelerates it. And so people living in the northern hemisphere are like literally getting hammered, you know, by a combination of cold, uh, of, of decreased sunlight affecting plant growth, you know, acid rain falling down on them. Um, you know, you, you can sort of imagine that there's, you know, it's a, a really intense event for any Eurasian hominins, right? And this leads to me in my model, again, I'll explain this in a bit, but two survival zones, because if you go below the equator, the impact is not as strong at all. And we, we know this because there's been recent testing of, of um, lake samples in South Africa. And they realized that you know, the Lake Toba effects, although it, it reached the whole planet, uh, south of the equator, it wasn't so severe. And so humans living in that region, and of course, there was, you know, quite a good pocket of, of you know, of Africans living south of the equator. But there was also... Uh, in my modern line, as I show in a complex argument, but that they're also in Australia. And so what's happened is that at this point, 74,000 years ago, the adjoining population is being wiped out, right? It's also being put under pressure to move. So you get, at this point, refugees 
Right, so you get climate refugees who cross what's called the Bab el Mandab Strait. On the other side of the planet, you're going to have people who've moved down under the equator below Indonesia and into the Indonesian islands and into Australia, because you know these are two pockets where they're safe, right? That's not to say that every single hominin in Europe dies or in Asia. We know that some Neanderthals managed to survive this cooling trend in, in remote areas. But, you know, pretty much it seems that at that point, the, the population sizes of hominins in Europe drops dramatic, dramatically. You know, and a few, like 20,000 years later, they're extinct. You know, like the Neanderthals, Denisovans vanished. So, I mean, their large populations have been obliterated and they, they sort of cling on for about, you know, a couple of, you know, a couple of tens of thousand years and then are gone. Now, people say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that there was people going into Africa or people going into Australia? And like, what is your evidence for that? You know, you know, surely everyone's just in Africa and it's that's the story we're told. And he's like, well, hang on a minute. There's a few things people don't really understand about the recent out of Africa theory, right? What we have is is DNA in Africa going back to about 8,000 years. Widely known in the public or widely understood, but... In terms of like ancient human DNA, the oldest DNA we have from an, from African remains is about eight thousand years old, right? So that that's really I find that's quite fascinating because I think most people will say to you, but look, all of this you know out of Africa theory is proven by African DNA, right? I mean I'm sure you've probably heard that or thought that yourself. Right. But that's the problem with that is if you have DNA that is 8000 years old, that can place somebody in a specific place 8000 years ago. Right. Yes. No yeah. more than that, because you, know, you can't then say that that proves that they were there 80,000 years ago. Right. That doesn't make any sense. So what we actually have is this is an argument where they said, well, look, because we have fossils in Africa of humans and we know that you know, that they seem to be the oldest, and we have some DNA, you know, 8,000 years old, we're going to assume that the ancestors of those people 8,000 years ago were also African, and that they were always in Africa. Well, that's a big leap, because we know that people can move around, you know, they have legs, right? They're not plants or trees, or, you know, so they, they take this leap that what is a modern African today, and these the genetic sampling is largely done on fully modern African people. I mean, I'm I'm partly African, so I mean, you could sample my DNA, and what you'll find is that around about seventy thousand years ago, there's um some new mutations appear in the African genome, right? So they say, well, look, you know, we can see that there's these new haplogroups, and these are the important haplogroups are uh, on the the MT mitochondrial DNA line, the sort of the the, the female line, you have haplogroups m and n sorry mn and l3 really the important ones l3 appears in african in the african genome around about seventy four thousand years ago soon after that we have the, the appearance of haplogroups m and n which although are not specifically in africa they're, they're in eurasia but they seem to be closely related to l3 right so the assumption is that these two m and n are mutations of l3 and that L3 is first detected in modern Africans uh, in their genome, are calculated to have appeared there 74,000 years ago, right? So it's nothing to do with ancient DNA. This is testing from people that lived in the last 100 years and then making an assumption, right, that, they, that their ancestors were always in Africa, going back hundreds of thousands of years, okay? The problem with that, of course, is that you're taking a massive assumption, for a start, not, which is not 
based on solid evidence. He's just thinking, well, this is a reasonable guess. And then you're assuming that, right, not only does this mutation occur, L3 occur, but they've also found on the Y chromosome, there's a new haplogroup there as well, which is haplogroup CT. Yeah. And the thing is, haplogroup CT and then the haplogroups M and N, right, they are foundational to all living Europeans and Asians, you know, who are not obviously mixed with Africans or whatever. But these are the, the foundational haplogroups that led to all of these populations in Eurasia. So it's really crucial to pin down, you know, are M and N really coming from an African haplogroup, L3, and is L3 really African, right? And I say, no, it's not. The amazing overlap. You have 74,000 years ago, you have an enormous climate event, right, which is laying waste to Eurasia. And then suddenly these haplogroups appear in East Africa near to the Babel Mandub Straits, which is one of those obvious ways to get into Africa away from the climate event, right? So you've got people fleeing for their lives carrying their haplogroups into Africa. And we even see that L3 spreads east to west into Africa, right? This is bizarre when you think about it, because this is something that we all fundamentally have grown up with the idea that this the case is closed on this story. That the, you know every article will tell you, 70,000 years ago, our ancestors walked out of Africa. It's proven by DNA, right? What you actually find is this is a ludicrously weak argument, which does not fit the evidence. And they, it's quite obvious that this is coming into the country, moving west and moving south. And that the other problem you have with this is that right, the haplogroups for um, basically if you look at the, the mitochondrial DNA and Y chromosomal DNA. They have wildly different mutation rates. Right. In fact, they're different by a factor of 10. Yeah. So the chances that you get a mutation suddenly at 74,000 years ago in East Africa on both the female and male line at the same time, right, is really, really unlikely, really, really unlikely. And even with that alone, the logical deduction would be it's more likely that it's somebody is interbreeding with these people, right? So, but instead of looking at it like that, because at the time when this theory was formed, there was no evidence of modern humans anywhere else outside Africa at the time. They simply made that leap that, well, it must be in Africa because there's nowhere else. But now we know that's not true because we have we have ancient fossils from earlier than that in China. And we also now have got archaeology placing modern humans in Australia at 65 to 80,000 years ago, right? And you've got, you got, in China, they found fossils uh, going back 80 to 120,000 years ago, right, in caves in China. And even an early archaic Homo sapiens skull, the Dali skull, which is now, is calculated at 260,000 years ago, right? So there we have this huge problem here because you can no longer say there's no people outside of Africa that could have been carrying this this you know, this genetic line, we know there were, and we see the timing, it matches the late Toba super eruption. We see where these two lineages appear, it matches where they would go into Africa. We see the direction they're moving, they're moving east to west, and we see that it's completely unlikely that they would emerge as, as random, you know, random mutations at that time. It's much more likely they're being brought in. Uh, and we've now, it's even going, and this is where it gets even, you know, more incredible, is that a recent paper came out which looked at the, um, Again, was looking at this, and they said, you know, of course, you'd expect if M and N, like these, you know, these two haplogroups that are foundational to all Asians and Europeans, if they're coming out of Africa, you know, if L3 has come out of Africa, mutated, 
given rise again this is another mutation but it's happened almost exactly the same time right l3 has become m and n so you've got all these mutations supposedly happening at the same time right uh, and then they say okay well look if they come out of africa we will see the oldest variants of m and n you know in the middle east and then you know in central asia and then south asia and onwards yeah because that's logic the people are moving out of africa towards australia right what they found instead is the australian aboriginals have the oldest variants uh, is that does that not seem to you problematic? So, so you mean that in the beginning, humanity moved out of Africa and then they went back and then they went out again? From my perspective, basically from when you have Homo erectus outside of, of Africa, later on, outside of Africa, Homo sapiens have emerged, you know, somewhere down in um, Southeast Asia, East Asia or Australasia. I argue for Australasia. But you can equally argue for East Asia because they have a really good fossil record. Um, but basically that you've got evidence there. You've got like the Dali skull uh, 260,000 years ago. So we know Homo sapiens are there very early. Uh, we don't have any evidence of Homo sapiens ancestors in Africa earlier than 300,000 years ago up until Homo erectus. So right, there's a, a huge gap there in the fossil record. So when people say, oh, okay, but you got the fossils. Well, yeah, we have fossils up to 300,000 years ago, but we also know that the event that's led to Homo sapiens happens 800,000 years ago. So, right, so now you've got a 500,000 year hole in the fossil record in Africa where there's no sign of our ancestors, right? No sign at all. Instead, yeah, in China, they're finding all sorts of weird early humans from 800,000 years onwards, which they don't know what they are, but they said a lot of them seem to be transitional forms that are becoming you know, more and more like Homo sapiens, right? So there seems to be a stronger fossil record in East Asia for the emergence of Homo sapiens. Instead, the reasonable interpretation would be Homo sapiens, archaic Homo sapiens, move west and enter Africa, having emerged from Homo erectus, who've been outside of Africa for since two million years ago, and that a group of them, or a very similar hominin, has given birth to the first of our line 800,000 years ago, somewhere down in that region, Southeast Asian region approximately, um, and that then they have begun to spread backwards and there's a back migration towards Africa, you know, across Eurasia into Africa that starts to populate Africa with Homo sapiens, and that these Homo sapiens in Africa start to mix with a remnant of, Af of the, you know, the descendants of African Homo erectus, which are called Homo agaster usually. And one reason why I know they did that is because another study recently came out and they found that um, in the sub-Saharan Africans, in fact, spread all around Africa, there's a, a quite common and unusual mutation in a saliva gene. And they found that what it was, this saliva gene has, has been given to Africans by an archaic human population about 150 to 200,000 years ago. They think they interbred and that, that this other group had been separate from modern humans for around about maybe up to two million years, right? And that's astonishing, right? Like coincidence, because we know that two million years ago, the Homo erectus split between African Homo erectus and Asian Homo erectus, right? So the fact that you suddenly have an anomalous interbreeding between Homo sapiens and another group that they've been split with for two million years, right? It's, it's a pretty damning piece of evidence. And the other thing is that you don't see that saliva mutation in Europe and in Asia, right? So if we're coming out of Africa later on, 
why is no one carrying that mutation with them it doesn't fit it doesn't fit it fits with people walking into the continent mixing with the local group and staying there it doesn't fit that then 70,000 years ago we walk out and nobody happens to be carrying that common mutation right so i mean it's a wealth of evidence that i deal with and that most people can't really get their head around they, they, they assume that possibly no better than academics who spent 40 years you know teaching this in a university but they must be aware of it too but i think that there is just a general a feeling that of, of drip feeding some of this information out to the public rather than a certain problematic shift because i have seen you know news stories in the last year since i published my work um, that have been saying some of the same things that i'm saying uh, and it seems to be there's an acceleration in releasing this information since i published and I think that, the, that at least some of the academics realise there's an inevitability in this. That it's becoming quite obvious that the evidence doesn't support the reason out of Africa theory anymore. And it's beginning to crack and collapse. And is this what your book is about and where can they get it? Yeah, this is what my book's about. Um, I provide all the references in there. They'll find the back of the book, you know, all to academic papers. I don't go out and do any digging. So, I mean, if you get, they go and have a look, they can get the book on Amazon, you know, they'll find it. So it's the Forgotten Exodus, the Inter-Africa Theory. They can go on and they'll see there as well that, you know, I've got endorsements from some quite well-known people and, you know, academics as well. And, you know, and obviously other authors and uh, the, the current moment, I feel like 4.7 star rating and stuff. So, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's not a silly book or, or a book that, you know, people are saying, what's this all about? Um, so far, yeah, people have been quite sort of impressed with it. Um, I've sent it, I've been contacting scientists. I'm constantly, sending copies to scientists and to journalists but the response is either silence or that you know oh, we might read it or you know and the journalists won't do anything about it they won't talk to me because i'm not with a university and there's a sort of a set format that they're used to getting you know a press release from a university from an academic um so it's unlikely that the press the mainstream press will ever talk about this until an academic comes out with the same model which i've already published and do you have any websites yeah, I mean, they can, if people like to check out brucefenton.info is my sort of personal page. There's a few blog posts and also the book links on there. Um, and also I have another website, ancientnews.net. And like some of the articles, you know, I've got on there will help kind of explain, you know, some of this work. I mean, I try and keep up to date. So when something comes out that's quite interesting, you know, I'll write my perspective on it for Ancient News. And also, also if people Google my name, they'll probably find... Um, some of my guest pieces and i've written a few for the vintage news and for um uh ancient code and stuff so if people are familiar with those sites um they're, they're finally yeah, I've, I've done guest pieces for several websites you know and again as i say I'm, I'm very transparent i do try to share this with academics so it's not something i'm hiding from them but i just don't get engagement you know they don't really seem to want to publicly debate this so thanks a lot then for taking the time to be on the podcast no that's fine i, I hope that you know, everyone finds it interesting. I hope, you, I hope that, you know, you've enjoyed it and that, you know, everyone else does. Go to brucefenton.info or ancientnews.net for more information on Bruce and his work or if you are interested in the topic in general. Divine Mystery. 
join us at patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. Support the podcast and you will receive all the glory of the universe, as well as my eternal thanks. You can find a link at the website. Freedom is in the mind. Now let's close with the track Fermentation from the debut album Iosis by Alchemista Sonida. The name of the album Iosis is named after the Greek word meaning the process by which a base metal becomes gold. And for those in the know in terms of alchemy, the title of the track Fermentation is one of the processes in alchemy. Anyway, if you want to check out this artist, simply go to alchemistasonida.com. Next Sunday, we are going to merge Christianity with psychedelics when I will be talking to the author of the excellent book, The Psychedelic Gospels. Talk to you all in a week. Freedom is in the mind.
Nasi 